Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I often tell people that uh, Joe Gibbs is my uncle, but actually that's not really true. So, uh, But uh, I do oftentimes get confused for uh, Joe Gibbs, so that's not the first time that's happened. Let me just say it's, it's a blessing to be with all of you here. Uh, we are in the process of moving from, uh, from New Hampshire to Virginia. In fact, my my wife is still there, my wife Nancy, and she sends her regards and says she's praying for the service. She's a kindergarten teacher. She's, fought, she's finishing up one last year in the school that was actually attached to the church where I was pastoring at. So, um, so uh, we are, like I say, in the process of moving down here to Virginia where I am uh, working on my doctor of ministry that's here. Well, before we open up the word, let us go before the Lord in prayer one more time. Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather together, to fellowship, but most of all, to worship. And we know that one of the ways that you give us to worship you is through your word. Lord, and as we open up your word this morning, I pray that it would cut deeply into our hearts. And I pray that the words I speak would not be my own, but rather they would be yours. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Again, that is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 7 through 10. But as you're turning your Bibles to that text, I want to just take a brief moment to share with you about a very difficult ordeal that my aunt had gone through a couple of years ago because I think it very much pertains to this text. Uh, a couple of years ago, that Thanksgiving... She has three daughters, and one of her daughters, Margaret, uh, was experiencing severe back pain, and she was feeling nauseous, and it turns out she was having a heart attack. She died that evening, and she left behind a loving husband and a 19-year-old daughter. Her second daughter, who's named Mary, for years had been struggling with an eating disorder. She had never been able to see herself the way God sees her, as, as one who's loved and forgiven and redeemed. And that eating disorder took its toll on her body. And shortly after her sister Margaret had died, she also perished. I left my aunt with one daughter left. Uh, her name was Nancy. Nancy had been struggling for many years with cancer, and she was in remission, and it looked like she had conquered it. But in that same year, it came back, and she also went to be with the Lord. And so within the period of time of roughly one year, she lost all of her daughters. But, you know, despite the terrible loss and the pain and the suffering my aunt continues to be a pillar in our extended family that lovingly encourages us all. And if you were to ask her today, how's she getting through this? How's she getting through the loss? She would give a little grin and she would simply say, God's grace gets me through it day by day. I don't need to tell you this past year has been a difficult year for all of us. We have experienced a, a global pandemic, civil unrest, 
geopolitical unrest, economic uncertainty. It seems like the world is in chaos. And then added to that are no doubt the personal struggles that, that you are dealing with. Maybe it's an economic burden and you don't know where your next rent check or your next mortgage payment is coming from. Maybe there is someone that's close to you, maybe even yourself, and you've heard those dreaded words, cancer. Or perhaps, perhaps it's some other health issue that has been overwhelming or some other struggle that you're going through in your family. Whatever it is, we are a people in need of God's grace. Amen? We are a people in need of God's grace. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about sustaining grace. It's the grace that God gives us to get us through the greatest disappointments, the most difficult challenges, and the most horrendous trials. Let me just say the word grace is probably the most commonly used theological term that we find in the New Testament. We see it 155 times. In the Greek language, the word grace is what we get the word charisma from, and it means a generous benefit given, a favor bestowed. And in New Testament theology, we understand it as a, as a generous benefit given to someone who did not earn such a benefit. And normally when we think of grace, we think of saving grace. It's that grace that justifies us, it makes us right in the eyes of God. In fact, we've turned the word grace into an acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Oftentimes we think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for it's by grace that you are saved through faith. It's not by your own works. Saving grace. But while saving grace is crucial for salvation, if we only think of grace as that which saves us, we are limiting ourselves to some of the greatest riches that God has for us, even in the here and now. Because God's grace doesn't only saves us, it sustains us. It gives us supernatural strength to keep on going despite our pain and our suffering and our loss. And it is this sustaining grace that Paul talks about, that Paul writes about here in 2 Corinthians. So take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. I'm going to read the entire text. And then we will go back and unpack it verse by verse. But here's what Paul writes. He says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect. In weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let me just say, if there's one takeaway that I would want you to walk away with this morning, it is this, is that God de desires his church to grab hold of his sustaining grace. God desires his church to grab hold of his sustaining grace. 
But that raises the question, how in the midst of all our trouble, when it seems like the world is falling apart, when it seems like everything is in chaos, how do we grab hold of His sustaining grace? Well, in this text, Paul gives us three ways in which we grab hold of God's sustaining grace. Three ways in which we grab hold of God's sustaining grace. The first way we're going to see in verse 7. And that's that we grab hold of God's sustaining grace by placing our trust in His sovereignty. The second way we're going to see as we take a look more deeply at verses 8 through the middle of verse 9, and that's that we grab hold of God's sustaining grace through prayer. And the third way we're going to see as we reach the middle of verse 9 through verse 10, and that we grab hold of God's sustaining grace through a humble spirit. Now, if you're a note taker, and I've noticed some of you are taking notes right now, and you miss those three ways in which we grab hold of God's sustaining grace, let me assure you, I'm going to repeat them multiple times, so you'll be able to catch those. But the first way that we grab hold of God's sustaining grace is by placing our trust in God's sovereignty. Verse 7. Now, as I was reading this text, if it seemed like we found ourselves in the middle of a story, that's because we did. In fact, to be more literal, we found ourselves towards the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And so it's helpful just to to understand a little bit of context and, and to understand what Paul was writing about even previously to chapter 11. Because in chapter 11, Paul describes some of the difficult trials that he'd gone through. See, it's important to understand that Paul knew what it was like to go through difficult times. In fact, if you've got your Bibles open, I encourage you just to flip back a page to chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 24 through 27. Again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 27, because here's what Paul's been going through. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among the false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness. See, Paul knew what it was like to go through difficult times. In fact, let me just say, if there's any passage that flies in the face of, uh, of that false, what's oftentimes referred to as the health and wealth gospel, that false gospel that is so prevalent today, that false view that if only your life is in alignment with Jesus Christ, you're going to experience a life of ease and of health of wealth. If there's any passage that flies in the face of that false doctrine, it's this. Because you know what? Paul knew about shipwrecks. He knew about floggings. He knew about beatings with rod. He knew about narrow escapes of death. He knew about terror. He knew about jails. He knew about torture. And he knew about starvation. See, we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, even the Christian life doesn't keep us from difficult times. In fact, the Bible guarantees we're going to go through it. Remember Job? Job writes in Job chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Yet man is born into trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. Psalmist wrote in Psalms chapter 22, verse 11, he says, Lord, be not far from me because trouble is near. 
Jesus himself, in fact, we, we looked at this verse in the adult Sunday school class earlier. And he gathered his disciples together that evening before his execution. John recorded in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you shall have trouble. It's a guarantee. We're going to go through difficult times. But in verse 7, Paul references a specific trial that was particularly burdensome to him. More than anything that he writes about in chapter 11. And he refers to this trial as a thorn in the flesh. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what this thorn in the flesh is. It is very possible that the Corinthians already knew about it, and that's why he doesn't describe it. We don't know. Various commentators have suggested uh, different possibilities. Some have suggested that he was experiencing some sort of a physical ailment that was believed to be life-threatening. Others say that he was perhaps uh, having to deal with depression. Say, Paul, dealing with depression? Is that possible? Yes, it is. In fact, earlier in this text, in 2 Corinthians, he writes multiple times about his despair, once even saying he despaired even of his life. But we don't know what this thorn in the flesh is. But whatever it was, it impacted Paul so much, he refers to it as a messenger of Satan. And he singles this out above everything that he described earlier in chapter 11. Now, let me just say, I don't know about you, but when I think of a thorn in the flesh, I think, you know, I give my wife some roses and it's got those, you know, little prickly thorns on it. And, you know, sometimes you prick yourself. Oh, gee, I got a thorn in the flesh. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not the imagery he's using. See, the word thorn, the Greek word that is used is the word scallops, and it references a wooden shaft that has been sharpened at one end and is designed to impale someone in battle. And so the imagery that Paul is using here, it's not just that I've been pricked with the thorn, but I feel like I have been impaled. Thorn in the flesh. But why does Paul have this thorn in the flesh? Well, interestingly, when we read verse 7, Paul refers to the sovereignty of God and his understanding that God is in control because he references a specific reason. There's a purpose for this thorn in the flesh. Now, let me be clear. It's not that God gave him this thorn in the flesh. After all, he refers to it as a messenger of Satan. But let's face it. We're talking about the God who created the entire time, space, matter, universe out of nothing. Does God have the power to remove this thorn in the flesh from Paul? Absolutely. But there is a reason why God is allowing Paul to go through this. And here's what Paul writes. It's found at the very beginning of verse 7. He says, Unless I should be exalted above measure. And then just so that we don't miss it, he references it again at the end of verse 7, unless I should be exalted above measure. In other words, he says, unless I should fall into pride. Paul? Really? The great spiritual Paul, would he fall into pride? Absolutely. In fact, he gives a reason why he may fall into pride. He says, because of the abundance of revelations that he has received. What in the world is Paul talking about there in verse 7? The abundance of revelations that he has received. Well, again, we need to understand context. And so if you go up to chapter 12, starting in verse 2, Paul explains what happened here. And he says, I know a man in Christ. Now, in this case, when Paul is saying, I know a man in, in Christ, he's actually referring to himself. 
In his humility, he uses the third person, but he's referring to himself. You say, how do I know that? Because if you follow this along, it then comes to verse 7 about this same man, and he says, unless I should be exalted. So he's referring to himself. And then he goes on to say, no man in Christ gives us time frame 14 years ago, 14 years prior to writing this letter, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up in the third heaven. What does that mean? Well, the word heaven has different meanings depending on the particular context. For example... Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 11. Uh, The word heaven is used to reference the earth's atmosphere. In other words, where the clouds is. And sometimes you'll hear Bible scholars refer to it as, that is the first heaven. In other places, such as Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, the word heaven refers to outer space, that where the, the stars and the planets are. And sometimes you'll hear that referred to as the second heaven. And then in other places, the word heaven refers to paradise place where God abodes. He's present everywhere. But where there's that special presence, why? Because that special presence is no longer in the temple currently. Daniel oftentimes referred to God as God in heaven. That's what he was referring to. Well, it is this, this third heaven paradise that Paul is referencing here. How do you know that? Because if you take a look in verse 4, it says how he was caught up into paradise. And he heard and no doubt he saw inexpressible things. What is Paul referring to here? Well, notice the time. It's 14 years prior to this letter. And what that would be is that would be after the time in which Paul on the road to Damascus saw the resurrected Christ and he he changed from someone who was persecuting Christians to one who would become a believer himself. But it was before his first missionary trip. And so it was really before his ministry. And there's a period of time, and Paul is in the wilderness and saying he was caught up into heaven and and he was taught by God himself and he heard inexpressible words, things that he cannot even express. Now, some of us will go to Bible school or we'll go to seminary or, or we'll go to the Liberty School of Divinity to prepare for ministry, not Paul. He was caught up in the third heaven and he was taught by God himself. Would that be something that could cause him to fall into pride? You bet it would be. Anybody ever questioned Paul about something? He could say, who are you to question me? I was taught by God himself. And Paul knows that pride can ruin a ministry. And so he says, lest I should be exalted above measure. You see, Paul is able to see this thorn in the flesh as something God is using actually to strengthen him, to make him become more and more like Christ. And by the way, Paul writes about this multiple times in the New Testament. Probably the most well-known text that we think about is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says, and we know that all things work together for good for those who, who love God, for those who are called to his purpose. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we misinterpret that text. All things work together for good for those who love God. And so we'll have a friend and maybe they'll lose their job and we'll try to comfort them. I mean, we, we, we have good intentions about this. And we'll say, well, you know what? Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, all things work together for good. This only means you're going to get a better job. Well, that may be what God has in store for that person, but that's not what this text is saying. 
You see, when it says all things work together for good, the good is not defined by our finite mind, but rather it is defined by God's infinite mind. And the good is defined in the very next verse, and it's defined in, in verse 29, which is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. See, all things work together that we would be conformed to the image of his Son for those who love God, for those who are called unto his purpose. The difficult times and struggles, those are working together so that we could be conformed to the image of his Son. See, Jesus knew something about suffering, didn't he? And so, for us to be conformed to the image of His Son, sometimes God allows us to go through suffering to mold us and to create us into the person He wants us to be. Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 3-4, through 4, he says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Some time ago, I was reading in a periodical, it's called the Sunday School Times, and it was a story about a little girl, and, and she was walking in the woods. And there in the woods, she, she saw one of those butterfly cocoons. And she so much wanted to see the butterfly come out of that cocoon. And so she carefully removed the twig, and she carried it home. And then she waited for a couple of days, and suddenly that cocoon began to shake, and she could see the butterfly start to come out. But she really felt bad for it because... The butterfly was struggling so much. So she took one of those really sharp X-Acto knives and she carefully slid open the cocoon. And when the butterfly dropped out of the cocoon, that little girl looked in horror because the butterfly's wings were withered, they were shriveled up, they were useless. See, God designed the cocoon to cause pressure on the butterfly, and that pressure allows them to strengthen and to straighten their wings. And by the girl opening that cocoon, she robbed the butterfly of its beauty, of its ability to fly, and she condemned it to a life of walking on the ground. God has a purpose for the trials that we're going through. And Paul recognized that even as he was enduring this thorn in the flesh. And his understanding that, that of God's sovereignty and God's got a plan, and his understanding that, yes, this is difficult right now, but, 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 but God is doing something in me and through me, that gave them, him the sustaining grace to get him through the trial. Let me ask you a question. Are you going through a difficult time right now? Unlike Paul, you may, in fact, you probably don't know what God is doing through you. But do you trust in God that he's doing something in you and through you? Do you trust in his sovereignty? In other words, do you trust that he's got a plan and a purpose for what you're experiencing right now? Paul gives us three ways in which we grab hold of God's sustaining grace. Number one, we grab hold of God's sustaining grace by placing our trust in his sovereignty, recognizing he's got a plan. Number two, we grab hold of his sustaining grace through prayer. Take a look at verse 8 with me. In verse 8, basically what Paul is saying is that he gets down on his knees and he prays not once, not twice, but three times. Now we know that, God, that, that Paul was a man of prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, he commands us to pray without ceasing. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Be anxious for, for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. But you might be looking at this text and say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Joel. Paul still had the thorn in the flesh after he prayed three times. His prayer wasn't answered. What good was Paul's prayer? About 15 years ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And just so you're not worried about her, let me kind of quickly bring you to where we are right now. She has been cancer-free for, I guess, it's been about 13 and a half years. So we've seen God work in, in amazing ways. But it was a time in which we were, of course, going through a tremendous struggle. And I was working for a mutual fund company at the time, of Fidelity Investments. And I was keeping my boss notified with, with what was going on, and, and he was familiar with, with the situation because, frankly, I needed to ask for, for time off. And uh, we had gone through a time which, you know, they, they had done uh, some surgery, and they thought they got all the cancer, but it turned out they didn't, and she needed to go through chemotherapy. And, and I remember talking to my boss. His name was Mike Gabri, great guy. And I remember being in the conference room, and I'll never forget what he told me. Now, you have to keep in mind, Mike is a great guy to work for, but he, he was not a believer. He kind of grew up in a Catholic background, but, but he was not a believer. And he shared with me that he and his wife, they decided to, to, to bring their kids up in, in this Catholic background that they had grown up in, and they had, they had two twin boys. And he told me that every evening before they would put their kids to bed, they would have them say their prayers, and every evening they were praying for my wife. Couldn't believe it. He's an unbeliever that's telling me his kids are praying for my wife. What an honor. But then what he said to me cut deeply in my heart. He said, but obviously those prayers haven't done any good. Ever feel that way? Ever feel that you're, you're praying to God and God's just not listening? I told Mike, I said, Mike, there's something you need to understand. I said, the prayers of your two young boys and the prayers of so many other people that have been praying for us, God had answered those prayers. It's because of those prayers that we're even able to get out of bed every morning. It is because of those prayers that God is giving us the sustaining grace to get us through moment by moment and day by day. See, Paul's, Paul's prayer was answered here. The answer is found in the beginning of verse 9. And God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, God's answer to prayer is not always going to be to quench the fire from us, but He always gives us the grace to get us through the fire. The great commentary, Matthew Henry once wrote, Troubles are sent to teach us to pray and are continued to teach us to continue instant in prayer. The hymn writer F. Whitfield wrote, God's way of answering His people's prayer is not by removing the pressure, but by increasing their strength to bear it. I mentioned Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. We are to be anxious for nothing, but bring everything to God in prayer. You know what happens when we do that? The answer is found in verse 7. Does verse 7 say that he's going to take the struggle away from us? No. Does it say he's going to take the pain and the suffering away from us? No. 
Here's what verse 7 does say, though. It begins with the conjunction and. In other words, and this is what happens when you bring everything to God in prayer. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, that's what the answer to prayer is. God's answer to prayer is not always going to be to take away the thorn in the flesh, but His answer to prayer is going to be always to give us the sustaining grace to get us through that thorn in the flesh. Paul gives us three ways in which we grab hold of God's sustaining grace. The first way we grab hold of God's sustaining grace is by placing our trust in God's sovereignty. The second way we grab hold of God's sustaining grace is through prayer. And the third way we grab hold of God's sustaining grace is through a humble spirit. Notice what it says starting in the middle of verse 9. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then if you skip down to verse 10, it says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Appears to be a great paradox, doesn't it? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. When I am weak, then I am strong. Here's what Paul is saying. It says when the, he's saying when the believer is consciously weak, when he painfully feels and he distinctively recognizes that he is weak, then he is made strong because he recognizes that his only strength is from the Lord. That's humility. I was reading a story about a high school teacher who received the award from the President of the United States for being Teacher of the Year was invited to the White House. They had a great ceremony in the Rose Garden. And as he is there in the Rose Garden, he was reminded that his life hadn't always been a garden of roses. In fact, 15 years prior to that, he was 18. And he went on a drunken rampage in his high school and he vandalized the school. He was caught and he was brought before a judge. And he looked at the judge with a proud face and a smug look because he remembered the words of his wrestling coach don't you ever hang your head don't ever admit defeat and you know as that teen looked at that judge with that smug face and that proud look the judge looked right back down at him and to the surprise of the entire court he sentenced that young man to five years in an Indiana youth detention center just a step below the Indiana State Penitentiary. And you know, as he went on that bus to that youth detention center, he had that same proud face and that same smug look. But it only took a couple of days in solitary confinement when he was in a cell with nothing but a metal cot, a sink, and a toilet before he began to break down and he began to cry. But more importantly, he began to pray and he said, God, I am defeated without you. And as he looks back, he said, that's when his life changed. He started attending a prison Bible study. He started taking college classes that were available to him. He was released after 14 months for good behavior, was placed on probation. He finished up his college studies and he moved to Florida where he became a science teacher. His name is Tracy Bailey. And as he looked back at that time, he said, I bowed my head and tasted victory. The great preacher Alexander McLarion once wrote, 
God works with broken reeds. If a man conceits himself to be an iron pillar, God can do nothing with him or by him. See, Paul took pleasure in his frailty and his weaknesses because his weakness allowed him to experience the strength of God's sustaining grace. You see, when you realize that there's nothing that you can do in and of yourself, that's when the strength of God's sustaining grace really kicks in. God gives us, or Paul gives us three ways in which we grab hold of God's sustaining grace. The first way we grab hold of God's sustaining grace is by placing our trust in His sovereignty, recognizing He's in control. He's got a plan and a purpose. It's not that God has actually necessarily given us this trial, but He's allowing us to go through because He's got a purpose for it. Second way we grab hold of God's sustaining grace is through prayer. Why? Because that, that's what gives us that peace that surpasses all understanding. And the third way we grab hold of God's sustaining grace is through a humble spirit. Why? Because God works with broken reeds like you and me. Maybe you're experiencing a thorn in the flesh right now. It's something that doesn't just prick you, but it impales you. Maybe it's the recent loss of a loved one. Family member diagnosed with cancer, a broken relationship, the loss of a job, or, or maybe it's some other heartache that you're experiencing in this family, or, or maybe it, it, it's just the heartache and the chaos that we're seeing worldwide. In a fallen world, these are real issues that we are going to face. But here's the application. You can trust God to give you the sustaining grace to get you through that trial. After all, as I said before, we are talking about the God who created the entire time, space, matter, universe out of nothing. Does he have the power to give you the sustaining grace to get you through that trial? You bet he does. And we're also talking about the God that loves you so much that he gave his only son to die on the cross for you. Does he love you enough to give you that kind of sustaining grace? You bet he does. And you can trust him to get you through to give you the sustaining grace to get you through whatever this fallen world throws at you. I've spoken this morning about sustaining grace, but I would be remiss if I also didn't mention the reality of God's saving grace. I've met all of you for the first time today. I don't know where you are at in, in your walk with God. There may be even just one here today that maybe even come to church for a little bit, but you haven't yet placed your trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And so I need to share with you something about God's saving grace. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That word sin simply means we miss the mark. In our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, and our pride, and our selfishness, we've come short of who God is. The Old Testament tells us in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, that God is so holy and righteous and just, He cannot even look upon sin. He cannot have a relationship with sin. And because we've sinned, we've missed the mark, and God is perfectly holy and righteous and just, that keeps us from having a relationship with Him. In fact, Paul describes this even further in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, when he talks about the wages for sin. In other words, here's the result of our sin. It says the result is death. And there he's not talking about a physical death, but rather he's talking about an eternal separation from God in a place called hell. Why? Because God is perfectly holy, righteous, and just, and we're not. We've missed the mark, and we can't have a relationship with him. 
But that's not God's desire for you. It's not God's desire for me. That's why that verse doesn't end there. There's an important conjunction, and I love this word, but. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. God loved you so much, and he loves me so much, that he gave his only son to take the punishment that we deserved. He died that we might live. And he's given that to us as a gift. But like any other gift, you have to receive the gift. You say, how do I receive the gift? Probably the most memorized verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16, tells us how to receive the gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, wait for it, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That word belief, it means to trust. It means to trust in who Jesus Christ is, that he is the God who rose from the dead. And to trust in what he did that day of Calvary on the cross. That his death on the cross was enough to save us from our sins. Before I pray, I'm, I'm going to close with just one more illustration. It's a true story. It happened in South Korea. It was 1952. There was a, a woman by the name of Bak Yoon. She was living sort of in the, in the wilderness of South Korea. Uh, it was actually Christmas Eve, and it was very cold out. In fact, it was snowing. And she was very pregnant, but all alone. Her husband had died with the war in the north shortly before this. And as she was there in her, her cabin, she started to feel contractions. And she realized she was going to give birth. But she had no one to help her. She knew there was a missionary that lived down the, down the road about a mile. Her name was Miss Watson. And so she decided to put on her warmest clothes and her coat and start to walk out to the snow for that mile journey to Miss Watson's house. But as she was walking down that road, the contractions became greater and greater, and she realized she wasn't going to make it. There was a bridge, and so she decided to go under the bridge, and underneath the bridge where she got some shelter, she gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. And she loved him so much. But she was so afraid what was going to happen to him because it was really cold out that night. So she took off her coat and her outer garments. She carefully wrapped them around the boy. And then because she was so exhausted from giving her birth, she laid her head in the snow and she went to sleep. Next morning came and that missionary, Miss Watson, had a gift to give to another family. So she drove down the road the opposite way and came across that same bridge and the car began to sputter and it stalled and it turned out she ran out of gas. So she got out of the car and she started walking across the bridge and she heard what sounded like a baby crying, but she said, surely it must be just the wind. So she kept walking, but then she heard it again and she decided that she needed to investigate. So she went underneath the bridge and she saw a beautiful baby boy all protected by his mother's clothes. And then she put her hand on her friend Bakun and she realized Bakun had frozen to death that evening. She died that he might live. Miss Watson went back to her car and she grabbed a knife and she cut the umbilical cord 
And she brought the child home and, and cared for him as if he was her own. She named him Soon Park. Twelve years went by. It was Soon Park's 12-year birthday. Another Christmas Eve, another cold evening. And Soon Park went to Miss Watson, who he referred to as Mother Watson, and said, is it okay if I visit my mother's grave site? And she said, of course, let's go together. And so they put on some warm clothes and hat and gloves, and, and they trudged through the snow, and they went to the grave site. And Soon Park says, can I spend some time alone with my mom? And so Mother Watson said, well, well, sure. So she walked several yards away and looked on from afar. And then she became concerned because Soon Park took off his hat and his gloves and his coat and even some of his outer garments. And he raised his hands up to the heavens. And he said, Mom, were you colder than I am now? And tears ran down his cheeks because he realized she was much colder than he was. She was so cold that she froze to death that evening, but she did it for him. That true story is an illustration of God's saving grace for us. Jesus died that we might live. That's the level of love that he has for us. But you know, the fact that that boy, Sue Park, never has to wonder whether there was somebody in this world that really loved him where he'll always know that his mom loved him so much that she gave her life for him, that's an illustration of the kind of sustaining grace that will get him through whatever this world throws at him. No one knows in this world when our time is up. We live in a world of chaos. No one knows when that time for decision has passed. If you haven't made that decision to place your trust in Christ alone, time is now. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful for the grace that you give us, not only to save us, to give us eternal life, that we might have a relationship forever with you, but that grace that sustains us gets us through whatever this world gives to us. Lord, I pray if there's even one right now who has not yet placed their trust in Christ, that today would be their day of salvation. Maybe you're here in this congregation and that's you. If that's you. Let me just encourage you to follow me in this prayer. Let me make it very clear. A prayer does not save you. It's placing your trust in Christ alone that saves you. But a prayer is a way of communicating that trust to your Heavenly Father. Lord, I recognize that I've fallen short of who you are. In my thoughts, my words, and my deeds, and my pride, and my selfishness, I recognize that I have sinned. But I'm so thankful for what you did for me on that cross. And even now, I place my trust in who you are, the God who rose from the dead, and what you did for me at Calvary that that was enough to save of your sins. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.